Welcome to another episode of Up To. Nine years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives. And in doing so, we have found there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman. And on this episode, we are joined by Dr. Scott Stornada. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner, an executive, or a rising member of a management team, I don't have to tell you about the importance of having team members and partners you can trust. A firm that I've worked with for years and have trusted myself to refer my colleagues to is Vividfront, an award-winning digital marketing, branding, and website development firm based in Cleveland, Ohio, but with clients all over America. Vividfront's focus is on scaling brands digitally. They create holistic return on investment centric strategies and solutions for middle market companies who want to grow. They do paid advertising, influencer and social media marketing, e-commerce strategies, lead generation websites. I could go on. Their expertise is expansive and their tactful leadership team, all of whom I know, has the entrepreneurial experience to turn ideas into revenue producing business plans. Yes, I am reading a script, but I will tell you that I sought Vividfront out for this podcast because I already believed in them, seeing what they did in the marketplace. So if you're seeking a partner to take your business to the next level, or if you're looking for an opportunity to work for a top agency with an amazing culture, truly an amazing culture, check out their website at vividfront.com or send me a note and I'll introduce you to my friends who run the company there. Vividfront, great organization. Welcome to the Up To Podcast, where we feature leaders who are as humble as they are successful. Our guest today is a physicist and a scientific researcher, and he recently became the CEO of an innovative technology company based in San Francisco called Icon, focusing on the non-currency possibilities of blockchain technology. He is considered by many to be the co-inventor of the blockchain, for back in 1991, he co-wrote a paper titled how to time stamp a digital document. Now think about that for a moment. More than 30 years ago, he envisioned our digital world today where every email message, text, and social media post has chronicled the exact time of the communication. He wrote that groundbreaking paper while at Bell Labs, which is where he went to work after earning his PhD in physics from Stanford. And while the true identity of the founder of Bitcoin is not known, the seminal Bitcoin white paper cites today's guest and his research more than any other. Our guest today is also a lecturer, a venture capitalist, and an advisor to several technology companies. Coming to us remotely from New York City, we are so thrilled to welcome Dr. W. Scott Sternata to the Up To podcast. Hello, Scott. What have you been up to? <laughs> well, I was... Uh... Less than 12 hours ago, I was coming off of a red eye from California. Mm. You know, you mentioned that I'm currently uh, CEO at Icon. Let me just be clear. I'm simply the interim CEO as we go through a, uh, a pretty well-orchestrated transition. Um, 
the prior CEO with the company's blessing um, left to form a new company that will become a, a major customer of icons. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, all, all amicable, but they needed someone to slot into the CEO rank. And I was actually just talking with our planned uh, successor, permanent CEO. So uh, let me just be very clear that sort of like a rock skipping across a pond, I'm just uh, I'm just minimally in there to kind of keep things moving forward until we've uh, got the the CEO of our dreams that we look forward to announcing uh, in the next couple of months. I totally understand that, but already your humility is coming out. You're 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 clarifying that you're only uh, for this part time. It's your full-time activity now, but for an interim period, you're going to be leading a company. And, and we'll get into the company a little bit, but thanks for clarifying that. I, I long ago learned what I was good at and what I was less good at. Mm-hmm. And so I've often told people that um, um, you know, the best way to have a winning portfolio is to find whatever I'm managing and short it. Okay? Now, I know that runs a little close to the bone if we're talking about ICOM, but the point is, uh, I'm not, I, I'm just kind of, uh, you know, helping nudge uh, things along. Uh, it, it's got a, a really strong um, going forward management team. And, uh, and uh, so again, don't, don't look to me to be the, the strong manager. Maybe, maybe the idea guy, but uh, not this Well, there must be something positive about your, your leadership skills. You were on the board there, I believe, and an investor, and, and they asked you to do this. But yes, we will concede you're an interim CEO, but you're not an interim grandfather. I like how in your opening of your LinkedIn profile, the first thing you list, not the PhD, not the time at Stanford or Bell Labs, but grandfather. And I don't think I've ever seen that before from someone at your level of uh, professional success. So what, what made you list grandfather first? Well, first of all, I, I like the idea, but I have to acknowledge that this is um, just trailing after someone that I admire, whom I'm, whose name I will not reveal, but is one of the leading uh, venture capitalists in all of Israel, who also lists grandfather as his first title. And when I um, when I first I, I've met him and, and talked with him, I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, I guess you could walk down the list of 20 most prominent VCs in Israel and find the one whose LinkedIn starts with grandfather, and then you then I would have outed him. You can tell me. But, nobody's, uh, anyway, nobody's listening or watching. Nobody's listening. Right. Right. Anyway, I I saw it and I thought, you betcha. That's I'm going to go for that because. I've got six grandchildren and they are really my portfolio companies. You know, they are my maturing assets. Um, okay. Obviously, the, um, there's some credit due to the three children who are uh, intermediate between myself and my grandchildren. And they're, they're pretty wonderful people as, as well. Uh, I could tell you were a family man when we first uh had our initial Zoom call a while back. What, what type of family were you born into? Was it a family of scientists like you? Or I often like to learn how successful people grow up, just kind of looking for trends or curves in the road one had to navigate. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's a great story um, from my perspective because um, my dad was a professor at the Naval Academy 
um, as part of his tour of duty uh, as a naval aviator, uh, aer aeronautical and astronautical engineering. But my mom was also a teacher. And the reason that I bring that up is my mom's mom, my grandmother was a teacher. And she had five sisters, okay? I'm sorry, there were a total of five mm -hmm. girls in that mm -hmm. family. And all five of them were teachers and mm -hmm. they were science teachers. Hmm. And so this is definitely um, your DNA. Yeah, and again, I you know, they were they were high school teachers, right? But it was clear that that learning mattered, that science mattered. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have a very vivid memory once I was in like fifth grade or something. And one of my great aunts, one of these sisters, um, we're sitting around one day and she decides to teach me the history of the metric system. And she teaches it in such an engaging way. How, like okay? how old do you think you I, were then? You, you, I can tell you remember it well. You think you were a teenager yeah, or younger? I'm, I'm, oh no, definitely younger than a teenager. And um, I think, let's say about fifth grade, maybe 10, 10 years mm -hmm. old. But again, you've got to understand what I'm trying to say. It, 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 it was that she was just such an enthusiast. She wanted to teach anybody that would listen and maybe even some that wouldn't listen, you know, about all these great and exciting things that had been done. And so the reason that the memory is doubly vivid is I got to, um, let's say, an eighth grade science class where the metric system was introduced for the first time, okay? Mm. And I can remember, this is like in the first week of school, and I can remember, it's like the science teacher starts posing these questions in a rhetorical sense, you know, mm -hmm. not expecting mm -hmm. it. And I'm just sitting there, wait, oh, I know this one, I know this one. Yeah, too we excited to about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get to the end of the class, and he says, can you stay after for a minute or two? <laughs> He's like, where'd you learn all this stuff? Mm. I said, oh, I had this great aunt. And she was like, and it's like, I was a little socially clueless that I wasn't, you know, I sort of felt like, well, doesn't everybody know all this stuff? You know, kind of thing. And he was kind of trying to say, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. I admire it. But you may want to just hold back a little because there's, you know, 25 students in this class. So your mother's anyway. side was this group of educators, this lineage of educators. Your father yeah. was in the Navy. Uh, could you become whatever you wanted, or were they pushing you in a certain direction? Was the pursuit of science your own thing? No push whatsoever. You know, there were five children in the family, and um, my mom taught us a love of music. My dad taught us a love of math and science. But, you know, it's today the term that I think people use is they talk about free range parenting, hmm. where you kind of let your kids sort of go and do and maybe even occasionally stick their finger in the fire or touch the stove kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I feel like they just led by example. They just, mm. you know, there was a certain set of expectations about what it meant to be honest and, uh, polite and and whatnot and it just never needed to really be reinforced how how early on did you know your path i can remember in i mean we're talking like third grade okay 
hmm. and maybe even earlier. I remember, you know, just being fascinated with models of atoms and, and things like that. And what to me is, is the irony is, so let's say from third grade, I, need, I knew I wanted to be a physicist, right? And so what is that, eight years old? And so from age eight until age 30, I say 30 because I had my 30th birthday in June and I graduated with my PhD in physics from Stanford in August, hmm. okay? And I realized at that point that I wasn't gonna be a physicist. 22 years and of I hard work. <laughs> exactly, and I sort of felt like, you know, you've been on autopilot for the last 22 years and and now you need to kind of rethink things. Yeah. And, uh, well, actually, the ball have in common. You, you, you and I have that in common. I also realized I wasn't going to be a physicist. I realized that much earlier in life, but we both came to the same conclusion eventually that we're not going to be physicists. I'm being a little bit humorous. You're really trying to evaluate if I had any interest in physics. I didn't. I, I failed physics horribly. And maybe that's why I'm so impressed with, with your background. Maybe you're the winner here because you failed fast. Isn't that what they tell startups? Uh, That's what we're today? supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. So I guess the way I think of it is I, I bring a physics perspective to a lot of things that I do. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was just very grateful that at the time when I realized that physics just wasn't going to pay the bills, that I got this favorable bounce towards Belcor, and it all kind of worked out. Yeah, right. And I was so intrigued when you first explained to me that when Bell Labs, Bellcore recruited you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said that they said to you, we want you to work on whatever you want. Just do it here at, at Bell Labs, which what, what a thrill for someone like you who's at the time was still pretty young and probably had huge ideas of what you wanted to pursue. Um, what a great opportunity. Again, it was just... It was just stunning to me. They said, look, we hired you. And this was not meant to me specifically. In other words, we hire people who we think know better than us what you should be working on, better mm -hmm. than us, the managers. And I just, I just thrilled to that. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, sign me you, up mean for that. Have, you, you mean I have uh, like an unlimited credit card in a candy store, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. okay. You know, I yeah. don't need you support. to tell me that. You twice. probably had support staff and yeah. Right. So when you, uh, were working there and exploring different ideas with your collaborators, did you focus on this digital stamping early on? Or is that one of many ideas that now we can look back on and think, wow, he was very forward thinking. Uh, again, somebody else has to decide how, to what degree I am or am not forward thinking. But we had plenty of ideas that we were working on simultaneously. And we, um, we identified a number of things that we wanted to work on. And that's Stuart as a collaborator, but other people as collaborators, that mm -hmm. it was such a rich environment there of who you got to work with. And the idea that you could dream big on so many fronts, it was just, it was just thrilling. Okay? Mm -hmm. I could just remember being, you know, you have uh, imposter syndrome, right? You, I, I can remember speaking to someone in the math and computer sciences department who was um, very senior, but he had 
he had been a physicist his career and then was managing math and computer science. And I remember having to go to him and explaining to him that there were all these things that I didn't know about. Were they sure that they understood who they were hiring? And, you know, he just smiled and said, you know, we really don't care. We just think you're going to have some good ideas. And you so, referencing the um, imposter syndrome again, though, illustrates the humility that you just innately have inside of you. And I, I, I know you're not trying to be humble. That's truly who you are. And that's why I wanted you on this program. Uh, the imposter syndrome is often something I bring up and explain to people what it is. So I, I love that you know about it and you felt that you weren't worthy of this, this role that you, were, that you were hired for. But thinking as this imposter, could have you ever imagined though that something you worked on in 91 20 and 25 now 30 years later would be so um credited to you as, as such an important facet of an early technology as the co-inventor of the blockchain uh i guess i'd say three things okay one and this will rip away you know your your efforts to promote me as humble when we <laughs> we we knew how important the problem was and, you know, we knew that 10, 20, whatever years down the road, immutable records was going to be a, an, an enormous underpinning of a functioning society. And I think we're only 1% of the way there, by the way. Wow. 1%. We knew that. Yeah, we knew that. I mean, it's still a fringe thing. The second thing we knew when we finally cracked the problem we knew that this was the right way to do it that this was going to stand the test of time okay so those are two very non-humble things but to us it didn't seem like arrogant versus non-arrogant it just said it's just yeah, I agree. the yeah. fact of the matter you saw something but that the others didn't thing, see but the third thing was i can remember when all of this activity started to grow you know credit satoshi for lighting that fuse and my son sent me this poster that had all the logos of all the companies that were highly touted in this broad blockchain space, organized by category, you know, like, you know, FinTech and it, I don't know, eight or nine different categories. Right. And I remember like unscrolling this poster and saying, how did this happen? You mm -hmm. know? How did this happen? If we're only at 1%, think about how big that poster will become. Well, I think the hype has been well over 1% for right. an extended period of time. But if you think about the actual impact, I mean, you know, there's the promise of disruption, but Bitcoin, you know, whatever, Ethereum, whatever, you know, they're still pretty, um, I would say, fringe. And there's... There's meaningful progress in lots of areas to gradually become mainstream. But I guess my point is, in terms of realizing the promise, we really are just at the 1%. There's lots of enthusiasts that think, mm -hmm. you know, we're to the moon, but they are not the mainstream. I think you're about to move into a topic that I had a question already thinking to ask you, and that is what categories beyond digital assets do you think are most ripe for this blockchain 
technology disruption? Is there, is there a certain category, whether it's healthcare or um, titles or some other documents, law category that you think we're right on the verge of seeing real adoption? Okay, uh, great question. And again, I get this question a lot and people want to know which of the current verticals, industries are gonna be first to adopt blockchain in a major way. And I, I don't think it's going to go that way. Okay. I think it's that we're starting to create an online world, okay? that in a sense is going to supersede the existing economy. Supersede the existing economy, that's a huge sentence. Well, I I genuinely believe it. I'm not saying it's going to happen in six months, but let me illustrate it in in a modest little example. A lot of people say, you know, what is the point of these cryptocurrencies before you can actually use them for real? You have to cash them out in the U.S. dollars or whatever the local currency is. Okay, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I agree. You know, fair enough for stuff you buy on Amazon or whatnot. But um, setting aside board apes, okay, um, NFTs are something that are gradually becoming real, and you can't buy them with U.S. dollars. You mm-hmm. have to convert them into cryptocurrencies before you can buy them. And so what what is rapidly going to overtake people is they're going to find that the conventional economy is on the outside looking in on a new economy that is being birthed. Hmm. Okay? And so the whole argument about, you know, what's the point of cryptocurrencies? Um, you know, you've got to cash it out into dollars before you can buy, you know, this this pen or, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and in fact, what we're going to see is an inversion where the people that are working in dollars are going to feel like they're on the outside of the party looking in saying, oh, can I cash my dollars into this cryptocurrency so that I can buy this new thing being birthed? in a digital world i i can't get access to it with my dollar i've got to join into this new economy the cryptocurrency um, momentum has slowed in the general marketplace the last year and a half maybe for macro reasons we don't need to get into but what you're saying right now i'm sorry i interrupted but reminds me a little bit we saw the beginning of that do you remember there were a couple of nfl players who wanted to get paid in bitcoin that was interesting. And I remember going to a couple of restaurants in big cities where you could pay using a digital wallet, some sort of, if not Bitcoin, other other token. So we began to see a little bit, and believe it or not, I live in Cleveland, the first barber shop in America that accepted cryptocurrency for payment was this barber shop in Cleveland. He was like the first crypto barber, which is the Bitcoin barber, he called himself. Now. You may be wondering, why was I going to a barber shop? I'll save you the um, embarrassment of even asking the question, so I'll just lead in with that myself. But I was just fascinated by the technology that he was bringing into a barber shop. What an old line industry. So I can see what you're saying. 
was we're beginning to see it, and I'm sure, like you said, it's only one percent of adoption. So we're, we'll rely on people like you to decide where we're going to go with it. So, at any rate, you, I want to return to the question you asked because you know people are expecting me to say, well, healthcare is going to be really the thing, or, or financial services, something like that. And my first answer to you has been, no, there are new things being created that you can only access via mm -hmm. a cryptocurrency or a token. But I think another big area that people don't quite yet grasp is that um, we talk about wallets, digital wallets, mm -hmm. crypto wallets. And it's probably a poor metaphor that we've chosen because it implies it's just something that holds your crypto and you either put money in or you take money out of it. I think we'd be much better off in not misleading people if we talked about this as our digital identity. Hmm. Okay. And this gets to something that's kind of been on my mind lately. And that is this, this alarming story about a woman named Jane Friedman. Uh, it was picked up in the news three or four weeks ago, I guess. Okay. She's a, a, a a pretty widely uh, published novelist, and she publishes, I guess, Kindle-wise on Amazon, although she may have physical books as, as well. I don't claim to have dug down into all the details. But in an age of generative AI, she found out that there was someone else on Amazon that was publishing whose hmm. name was Jane Friedman and was publishing AI-generated novels that sounded a lot like hers. Hmm. And she, she, you know, calls up Amazon as if anyone can find a number to reach Amazon. Right. And says, hey, there's this other person that, you know, is, is pushing novels with the name Jane Friedman. And they say, well, have you trademarked Jane Friedman? Well, no. Uh, well, then they're just as entitled as you to say Jane Friedman. And so when I talk about digital identity, the reason I tell the story, okay, um, digital identity is being able to assert, I am this person. I am the person that authored these previous novels. And I want you to know that this particular thing has my mark on it. Mm -hmm. And only I am able to assert that mark. And so when you start to see a world where you can simulate, okay, not just text, not just images, but you can even simulate, you know, video, or to put it more pointedly, a podcast. Right. You could simulate the two of us having an interview in a podcast, okay? Scary. And who then gets to decide who's authentic? Mm. And digital identity is the answer to that. And I'm just very excited about what we're going to see on the horizon in that regard. And I think that's probably one of the reasons you got interested in ICON to be more involved Absolutely. in the prior uh, level of involvement. You've explained to me identity as a product is something that could be sold in the marketplace. Identity, yeah, not I think it's going to be... different people, but identity. Right. I think it's going to be very valuable. Hmm. Again, um, AI is going to bring a lot of good things from my perspective. I, 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 I 
you know, I'm often well known for blockchain related things, but you know, my my PhD at Stanford, even though it was in in the physics department, was was a neural networks PhD. And in fact, as far as I've been able to determine, mine was the actually the first neural networks PhD that came out of Stanford. Mm. And so I've been following the AI space long before there was a chat GPT, I guess is my point. And yet, um, and so I'm thrilled about what what AI can do that brings benefit. I don't, you know, see any foreseeable scenario where AI, you know, tries to take over. I think that's just a total, total uh, misunderstanding of the concept. And there, I know I'm disagreeing with Elon Musk, whom I uh, uh, regard as, you know, right so many times, but wrong on this one. And and yet, here's an area where generative AI starts to bring into question: Well, how do we know who the authentic whoever is right. when anyone can do a generative AI of of anything? So, focusing on identity with blockchain technology is a good way to do that. Absolutely, I think it's going to be a very big deal. I'm grateful that Calfi, Halter, and Griswold has once again agreed to partner with us. With offices in Ohio and Washington, D.C., this full-service national law firm focuses on all aspects of business and the law, including corporate and finance, intellectual property, and government relations. Let me be clear. I actually approach companies with whom I would like to partner. We just don't accept marketing dollars from anyone. I have been referring my CEO and entrepreneur friends to Calfee for years. I really believe in the firm. One of their notable practice areas is in mergers and acquisitions. And recently, for instance, I introduced a successful entrepreneur in the Midwest to Calfee when he told me that a European-based conglomerate wanted to buy his business. Calfee works with large corporations as well as privately held companies throughout the U.S. and Canada and in Europe and Asia, too. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, and you can find them at calfee.com or on the UpTo Foundation website. Well, let's talk a little bit about your role now as interim CEO. You've been inside big corporations and small ones, and also kind of doing your own thing. What made you um, so willing to step into a small, basically startup, uh, maybe out of your comfort zone and, and take this risk of leading an early stage company? Well, it just needed to be done. In other words, it was one of our portfolio companies. I was a member of the board of directors. Uh, this issue came up where there had to be a transition. And mm -hmm. so the board sat around, you know, basically a virtual table, you know, a Zoom conference room and said, well, gee, how are we going to manage this transition? And it was one of those, you know, everybody said noses and I was slow on the draw. And uh, I said, well, look, well, I can help out. There's probably only one board member who was considered the uh, godfather of blockchain. So it was more than just duck, duck, goose and the last guy standing, I imagine. That is a good game, Duck Duck Goose. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good game. Anyway, um, I said, "Look, I can handle it through Labor Day. I've, you know, I've got a, I'm kind of on vacation." 
And, you know, then they asked me to stay a little bit longer than Labor Day. But uh, uh, again, we're, we're very much on track to having the right person in that position. And I, you know, uh, no one's looking forward to that uh, more quickly than, than I. So, and, and I hope none of our limited partners are listening in. But I've often said that. Well, we it's know the one is, just I, one, full disclosure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I've, I've often said that it's the mentoring I love. You know, hey, I've made all these mistakes. Let me let me coach you a little bit so you don't make this particular one kind of thing. And and so I've I've often confessed that even if I didn't get paid to do it, I you know. Well, see, this is I'd what I was kind up... of searching for. Is I could tell that you might like mentoring. I had a hunch that you might like having an impact on younger technologists or people with different skill sets than yours. Absolutely. I, I don't know. To me, it's the same experience that you have in the classroom when you teach something and you see the light bulb go on. And it's like it never gets old to be able to explain something and to have someone sort of see this wider world open up. See, and, this is oh, this is your mother and you. Look how look how your hands are up. You're you're lighting up when we talk about teaching others. This is the teaching absolutely. DNA in you. I I I I, I plead guilty. Well, what do you, what do you like to do when you're not uh, building a technology company or not uh, forward thinking thirty years into new technologies? How do you how do you spend your elective time? What I call elective time. I'm always interested in knowing how high achievers who seemingly have done so much, how do you unwind or let your mind kind of wander a little bit? Well, you know, um, I read a lot. I read a lot of history. I read a lot of historical biographies. Okay. Hmm. Although I also confess, and, and I like going, I like running, I like swimming, anything that I can kind of monotonously just sort of forget what I need to think about. Although I do have to confess, you know, I don't want you to think that it's all about, um, you know, reading high-minded uh, books and histories of whatever the Peloponnesian Wars. Every once <laughs> in a while, I'll come across something that I like so much, either a piece of music or a movie that I think is particularly well-crafted. And this is a trait I share with one of my sons. We just binge watch the thing, not because we don't know how it's going to work, but just to watch how they do the cinematography, mm -hmm. how they do the plot line, Structuring it how all. they mm -hmm. write the dialogue. And so, um, I was, I confess I was running today on a treadmill at the hotel and you know, it's kind of boring in a hotel fitness center, just running on a treadmill. So I was watching Peaky Blinders, uh, a mindless, violent, you know, streaming show, which, which I like, and it just helps to pass the time as you, you know, try to move forward with the mileage. So I think we're all guilty of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, take, take something that I consider, you know, so exquisitely constructed, like the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy movies. Mm. Okay. Every line well thought out, all the mm -hmm. progression, all the cut, you know, the cuts from one scene to the next, all of these things. And my one son and I just kind of obsessed and we rewatch and we rewatch and we rewatch and we go, We'll go, you see how they did that? You see, see what they're doing there? And then um, within the last year, something like Andor, which I think has uh, re-justified the value of the entire Star Wars franchise by, by elevating it. We'll watch it again and again and again, not because we don't know what happens, but we say, look how well they 
did this or mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing this. I mean, this this storyline right now makes you more approachable uh, than you might think. It's not just all high-minded Stanford research. You're also a, a real person, uh, like so many of us who like to be entertained. Now, you mentioned Lord of the Rings, which brings my mind to C.S. Lewis and the imagery of kind of you know, kind of Christian ethos and systems and figures. Uh, I was going to ask you, because I know you're a man of faith, do you ever think about the coexistence of faith and science? I have a lot of friends who are really science-focused and others who are very faith-focused, but I haven't um, come across too many people who walk down both paths equally. But I, I think you might have had a chance to think about these things more than others. I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about it, but quite frankly, my answer is kind of dull. It's, I just don't see the difference between the two. To me, it's all of a piece. Keep going. It's all, it's all exploring the world. It's, it's, it's all trying to figure out what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm actually speaking. I'm actually speaking on a panel tomorrow um, that is very much about this topic dead on. Oh. And I'll tell you one story that, or one anecdote that was an awakening moment for me. Uh, I was at Stanford, and I remember I was. Um, we would go past the, the where the Stanford tennis team's arena is and just passed there and there was a dirt track that we could run on, Jeff Jeff Olson and myself. And it was just after I found out about neural networks, okay? And I I felt like I had this real breakthrough where people talk about, well, is it evolution or creation kind of stuff? Mm -hmm, And I said, mm -hmm. you know, in traditional programming, you write every line of code, okay? You're the creator of this piece of software. But with neural networks, okay, you set up the system and then you introduce the external data and the system aligns and optimizes and trains itself up, okay? But you still say, I'm the creator of this piece of code, Mm -hmm. okay? And yet you didn't write every line. And to me, you know, what is, I just thought, well, that's a much cooler way of creating things. So the creator, the God, so to speak, is the human programmer writing the code. And then the code has free will, like we humans have free will to do things. Yeah, I, I, following? I mean, that's the rough, that's absolutely, that's kind of the rough one-to-one thing. And I, I it's like I had this, in retrospect, this very narrow view of what it meant to create something in mm-hmm. software, mm-hmm. namely write every line of code. But now it's lay the framework and let the data lead to the optimal, you know, uh, the optimal uh, point. Of, I like this. Of, I'm going to try uh, to. I'm going to try to uh, use that in my own uh, conversations with. Uh, science-based folk who kind of poke holes that they see in the faith systems, whether Jewish or Christian or otherwise, because it, it could be in their language more. Uh, no, no pun intended. They're 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 yeah. LLM. <laughs> yeah, 
I, I, I really think that it's that we have such a narrow view, sort of, if you will, in both camps. And it can be so much bigger and make so much more sense if we really try yeah, that's to integrate. That's something you could write things. about. That's, that's powerful. You, well, you're going to be on a panel tomorrow. Is that something that will be on, online eventually or others can see or just people in the That's room? a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But even if it was online, how would you know it was authentically me? Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, gotcha. I like it. Always closing. You're back to the, the, the main subject at hand. I like that. Um, let me ask you this. Do you think much about, before we wrap up, do you think much about your own legacy? You're going to be on a panel tomorrow. Do you think about how people view you? I know you're humble, so you don't spend an unhealthy amount of time on it. But maybe if I give you permission to reflect a little bit, um, you're still young, but on the work you've done so far, you have created a legacy. Yeah, I don't think a lot about that. Let me tell you what I think about. the. Um, you know, every person matters. And so making sure that you have a quality interaction with whomever you come across that day, mm. you know, that's how you got to measure yourself. Okay. You know, there's a, this wonderful poem, um, uh, by William Blake, and I'm sure I'll get part of the quote wrong, okay? Um, but he has, um, what is it? To see the world in a grain of sand um, and eternity in an hour, okay? Um, and the point he's making is it's about the quality. It's not about the quantity, okay? You get up each day, you meet people. These are, these are the people that matter because they're the people that you're running into mm. and making sure that you do your part of, you know, helping them along. That's the only scale to measure stuff on. I love that. I mean, this is an unexpected wrap up to this conversation, but, uh, referencing William Blake and how our interactions with anyone we spend time with are really the measurement of what matters. That's a, a perfect, I wrote this down just now. I want to remember this. I'll share it on our website. But my point is everything else is, a, everything else is a crapshoot. You know, whether you find yourself in a position where you have the ability to have great influence or little influence, that's just kind of the luck of the draw. But what you can control is I'm talking to this person today. How mm -hmm. do I make, their life better? How do I make that interaction matter? And that's the only way to calibrate. Well, you've made my life better by participating today on the Up To podcast. Thank you so much. You're super busy. California yesterday on a panel tomorrow, running a company today. So thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate great questions. Appreciate the dialogue. Which the time we went fast. A lot we'll do it again. We'll do it again. Okay. Thanks. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Up To Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via your podcast platform of choice. To receive our newsletter, suggest speakers, and give your candid feedback, please email Adam directly at adam at uptofoundation.org. We would love to hear from you. The Up To Podcast is produced by BLC Digital Strategies, a full content creator company located right outside of the nation's capital in Tysons, Virginia. 
See you next time.